0: And start shopping at business.walmart.com That's business.walmart.com Welcome to the MGMA Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. This week we're talking about... The Future.
1: The practice runs more smoothly, they have better data, patients are happier, and the providers can go about delivering healthcare in a more meaningful way.
0: That's Anthony Brooke talking about the promise of technology in healthcare. We'll hear more from Anthony later in the show. We'll also talk to Andrew Yonke about AI and blockchain, Kevin Hoover about RTLS, and Joette Derricks about the regulations around health IT. That's all coming up on this episode all about healthcare technology, but first, a word from our sponsors. Imagine being able to increase patient access through innovation, reduce turnover in your organization, or plan a thorough revenue cycle that reduces inefficiencies. Those are just some of the problems facing medical practices that will be addressed this year at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. For more information, check out our annual conference blog at mgma.com fuse. And to register, visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19. One of the biggest questions that perplexes many in healthcare is, where are we going? And what does the future look like? With new technologies emerging every day, it seems the answer to that question is ever-evolving. Anthony Brook is an industry expert, VP of Strategy at Getwell Network, and the 2016 winner of MGMa's Prime Health Innovation Challenge. I asked him to gaze into his crystal ball and tell us what the future holds. Um, and I think in our area where healthcare is designed to
1: uh, first take care of problems that currently exist, and then I think at a longer trend as we start to uh, move away from a fee for service and truly towards a some type of value wellness compensation model. Uh, we focus on the total wellness of a person. And so, with that, having more tools disposable to us that we can access and actually use is great. Uh, I think that you're starting to see a little bit of that with very, very early, but you know, Apple help kit. Um, it's nothing different than what Microsoft did many, many years ago with their health vault, I think they called it back then. Um, but we're now at a, a sea change where the legislation and the consuming, or the consumers are ready for that. Um, it's one of the things I tend to like about Apple. It's not so much that they're the great innovator, they're never the first, but they always nail it when... The marketplace is ready for the net new thing, um, even if that thing's been around for ten years. Uh, they they tend to have it. So I pay attention in the crystal ball to things like that. Um, I actually personally believe that blockchain is going to play an interesting component in this transparency problem we have when you have very distributed systems. Uh, because that's what we're talking about when we say all these nice internet things, it's a whole bunch of unconnected entities and we're accustomed to protecting data um, at a covered entity level. So those are some of those barriers. I think that's what we'll see a lot. Um, the other one that I truly think, uh, uh, not that I'm by any means at first, but AI, Obviously, has some pretty large impacts for us. It probably isn't what we think it is. Um, it's kind of like genome sequencing. Uh, it, it's impactful. It's amazing. But we haven't changed the way we deliver healthcare because of it. Um, I think the same thing is with AI, that it's subtle where it starts we are starting to employ that and some of our partners are as well where we're using it for interpreting what's the meaning of of the patient's pretext comments or and then as a result where should we route those um should we do a clinical or or not based on what they say Um, what is the um, context or what is the most if we have five different problems to solve which one's the most important right now Uh, Should I deal with my chronic condition or my sprained ankle? Um, And then as a result, should I give you information around one or the other? Because we understand that you don't have enough bandwidth to take it all in. And then the last one I would say is personalization. We're all unique individuals. And so right now, I think that we tend to stratify our patients as we need to into large buckets uh, to try and determine, is it X or is it Y? The promise, uh, which still hasn't been quite delivered yet, of AI to the medical industry is that we will be able to do smaller and smaller niches uh, and do smaller and smaller groups of patients to be more personalized or accurate to their particular needs, and whether that's on the clinical side or or much more on the preferences side, Um, they go almost hand-in-hand so that you get that human touch uh, as much as you get a a more
0: directed clinical touch. One of the things Anthony touched on there is blockchain. Blockchain has been a pretty big buzzword in the healthcare field for the last couple of years. Andrew Yonke is a cybersecurity expert and the founder and chief technologist of Colorado Springs-based... RAIN Technologies. I asked Andrew to explain to me what blockchain really is. Well, blockchain is also referred to as
2: distributed ledger technology. And what blockchain can do is improve the integrity and the reliability of data particularly transactional data which is why blockchain is used in cryptocurrencies Uh, so rather than having a central location where all transactions are tracked say for instance at the bank the distributed ledger technology means that every participant in a particular blockchain system all get a copy of the ledger uh, uh, together they all get their own copy of it and so Anytime somebody requests to make a change to the ledger, it's got to be authorized and you have to have the the hash key, the password, if you will, on both ends uh, to perform that transaction. And once it's verified that it's been authorized, duly so, then the rest of the network can be made aware
0: of that. So basically, blockchain is a growing list of records and blocks that are linked to the previous block. By design, it's extremely resistant to modification. I asked Andrew if he thought blockchain would revolutionize healthcare.
2: It is a way of decentralizing um, uh, otherwise relatively at-risk systems because they are central and they're single points of failure. But blockchain in and of itself is, is really a mechanism to build and provide trust. And it allows people to conduct commerce between themselves without an intervening authority like a central banking system or something to that effect. So there will be a lot of security technologies that will continue to leverage blockchain because it has this crowdsourced trust factor, if you will. But in and of itself, it doesn't represent anything that will further or provide more security for your average healthcare practice.
0: Another thing Anthony Brooke touched on earlier is AI. Artificial intelligence, also called machine learning, is intelligence demonstrated by machines. Millions, even billions of data points are fed into a computer program. The program is then given a set of algorithms or instructions. Based on the instructions given and the knowledge from the data points, the program is then asked to work out problems cognitively, just like the human brain does. I asked our friend, cybersecurity expert, Andrew Yonke, to give us a real-world example of this.
2: I think that AI is actually kind of the the next real big piece of cybersecurity because, and I was telling somebody else this the other day, I think that it's very soon going to be, and, and this is not an exaggeration at all, ai versus ai because like i said we're already getting attacked by the computers now the computers are just running the scripts that the hackers write, so they're you know they're not doing it intelligently but the security companies are now starting to employ artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to identify uh, threats and the attackers are able to do the same thing they can use the botnets that they create they compromise millions of machines uh, or just get cheap cloud services or what have you. And they can now build their own AI as well. That's going out and constantly automatically identifying and taking advantage of vulnerabilities. And so having real time artificial intelligence that can react to that. So it sees something happening that may be questionable. It's anomalous. Like it's a user logged in at, at three o'clock in the morning, for example. Well, that user is never logged in after, you know, 5 p.m. And so I think that's a problem. So really in a few months to a few years, a lot of the real time conflict, if you will, on the cybersecurity front is, is going to be AI effectively attacking and defending simultaneously. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre thing to imagine, but it's, it's basically already happening now. It's just going to continue happening more.
0: Well, it's it's been a, a constant theme in science fiction. You can go back to 2001 or the Terminator series, the machines sure. eventually take over. So uh, wh- what do we no. need to be worried about here?
2: Well, I, I think we absolutely need to both worry about it and also make sure that we're identifying what the solutions are. And so as the security platforms and security products become more centralized and AI capable. So something that we're deploying for our customers now uh, called a SIM or a security information and event management system. But it's basically the thing that's aggregating events and logs from all these things that we talked about, workstations, servers, firewalls. It's all pulling it in together because what artificial intelligence needs, what it what it feeds on is data. And you've got to just feed it as much data as possible. So that it can start to understand what are, what are normal things for this network or this, you know, this environment and what are abnormal things for this. And so it can start to respond immediately in real time so that as soon as somebody starts trying to attack, you've got artificial intelligence that even though it hasn't been successful and it hasn't, uh, something hasn't happened that would fire an alert off to, to an IT administrator The artificial intelligence itself is already not just watching it, but it can be alerting and it can even be making changes in the environment uh, to to ward off that attacker. And so that's what people need to do is continue to ask these kind of questions, lean on their IT providers and IT departments, ask as many questions as possible. And if they don't feel like they're getting the very best answers or they, they don't feel like that IT vendor or department or person is maybe up to the challenge, then they're going to have to look a little bit further. And that's another one of those myths is that all IT people are, are effectively the same. And obviously they're not, we're all very, very different. We have lots and lots of different backgrounds and skills, but and there are people now that all they do is security, for example. And so if there isn't somebody near that conversation for a healthcare provider, then they should work to bring one in and in tandem with their IT person or department or provider. Again, it's a collective uh, collective approach, but you need somebody that that really understands security to make sure that that you're not a soft target.
0: Thanks to Anthony Brooke and Andrew Yonke for giving us a look into the future. Now let's look at a different innovative technology that's currently being used in medical practices and hospitals. RTLS, or real-time locating system, is used to automatically identify and track the location of objects and even people in real time. RTLS has often been used in automobile assembly lines, warehouses, and is now finding its way into the medical field. Kevin Hoover is the director of musculoskeletal imaging and intervention at the Department of Radiology School of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University. I spoke with Kevin about the use of RTLS in a healthcare setting.
3: And uh, what it allows us to do is to know where someone is, um, when they're there, so we know when they're there uh, pretty closely to the second sometimes, and also with whom they're with. So um, these are all really key piece of information uh, that allow us to really optimize their uh, the time they spend in a place because you know as we all know time is really the most precious quantity here whether it's the patient's time or the the staff's time that uh, you know patients have a certain expectation uh, for what their experience is going to be and so You know, we use uh, a system where you basically have a badge, and that badge allows us to both, you know, receive and send signals. So based on those signals and where the receivers and transmitters are within the institution, we know where a patient is. Um, So it's, it's a way for us to, you know, really, you know, drill down on those processes that allow us to, you know, maximize a patient's time at our at our at our health care
0: center. Mm-hmm. Is it like a beacon then it's telling you uh, Miss Jones is in the waiting room now and Miss Jones is now in the you know the operating room I mean is it is it just tracking the person as they go along or uh, what exactly yes. is it doing? It is
3: it is so you know we've got these you know it's like the there's there's a beacon uh, that sends out a certain you know signal so we know where the patient is and you know, based on where the receivers are, we can decide how how we want to drill down. Do we want to know that the patient's sitting in the chair by the window, or do we want to know that the patient's in the room? Uh, so we can get down to a level of detail that can be very, very specific. So in healthcare, some resources are very, very specific. So, for example, if you've got a patient receiving infusion for uh, a rheumatoid condition, for example, so the, a drug infusion into their the intravenous, which may take, you know, two hours or or let's say two hours. We kind of want to know how long that situa- that patient is sitting in that specific location uh, getting that care. Uh, whereas, you know, you may just want to know how long a patient's been in a waiting room. How long are they sitting in the room? So that doesn't need to be so granular. Um, and so and that can be important because if a patient's moving. They move, move, move to a different seat if you're not have that, uh, if the field that you're uh, looking at is, is too granular, too small, you're gonna, you're gonna miss the patient basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it allows us to kind of dial up or dial down exactly how specific uh, information we wanna gather.
0: Now, do the patients, do they have to sign anything to wear these? Do they, are they made aware of that they're gonna be tracked throughout the health system or how does that work?
3: yeah no that's that's you know that's something that comes up a lot you know and we don't actually have them sign anything specific we tell them what we're doing what it's about you know one of the things about you know our specific system is that you know the 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 badge the patient wears you know it's you know it's not without expense so we don't want to lose it but we also it needs to be in a certain certain location on the patient. So it needs to be sort of high and towards the, the neck or on a lapel a little higher so that it's uh, detectable. So in that process of educating the patient about where this needs to be and that when you're done to deposit it in the box, for example, uh, tell us that you've done with your your, your day. Um, we also talk about what it's for and what we're trying to do with it. And that, um, you know, and, and we've, we've had patients refuse. And I would say that uh, the number of patients we've had refuse has been um, so minimal. It's, I think I have three examples or four examples of patients in the last three years that have refused to wear it. Um, so it, I think it's really an education thing. And, you know, th- that education piece is true for everybody across the institution. Um, you know, because there's this concern that like Big Brother's watching, right? So that that's definitely uh, something that you know, we have to communicate, and that's a part of the culture, culture change. And so we, have, we haven't we have had specific waiver but We just tell the patient what it's for, um, and, you know, we can talk a little, little, more, little more about the, the specific circumstance in which we use it, where it really does help us facilitate the care and speed their care.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you've talked about the patient wearing them for the purposes of... Getting a better understanding of staff. Do you do you have any employees also wearing them so you can kind of see how much time they're spending in each area of the hospital or health system?
3: Absolutely, um, and I think again it's a culture thing. So you know people are concerned they're being tracked, uh, and so we try to, you know, the language is important. We talk about being you know patient location, staff location, um, and so um, we, you know, we we. Pretty much use it in one of our outpatient ambulatory uh, care facilities and um, we have a bunch of different staff people who are looking after patients so for example if a patient comes into a room there'll be a medical assistant who'll come in and see that patient so they do the basic registration for the patient in the room get some basic information vitals um, we also have them uh, fill out certain forms so In order to prevent sort of overlap of you know of staff we want to see that the patients with that specific staff member so you know these things are visually we can see visually you know on a board where the patient is with whom they're with and so we have you know medical assistants have a specific badge specific icon that we can see on the digital board the the um, registered nurses have a specific badge nurse practitioners physicians etc so and one of the thing that this is useful for too is that you know at our specific place um, you know we don't want patients to wait too long we want patients we have a goal that no one is no one goes quote untouched meaning no one's by themselves without a staff person for more than 10 minutes and so one of the things that this system allows us to do as soon as a, as a staff member is within you know, a very short distance of the patient um, we can there, there's a timer that goes that goes off once that staff has, has seen them. And so, you know, we can see, anyone can see on our board that a patient's been alone for 10 minutes. Any of us is empowered or as you know, we should, we, it's our job to go and touch base with that patient, touch base with the staff and say, you know, what's going on? Why are they waiting so long? So, uh, and we can actually see this on the board that you can see like when a staff person goes up to a patient waiting for 10 minutes, that timer goes away. So it's one sort of cue for us. It's a very simple cue, um, but it's one of the ways that we, you know we express to our staff. It's like, look, you know, this is not a, a you know a tracking device. We're not like you know watching how long you're on YouTube. We are really here to you know make sure that staff are properly allocated, that they're seeing the patients when they need to, um, just to improve you know patient experience and um, hopefully staff experience too
0: right where are we in the life cycle of this product and are there are there statistics on it yet to show us uh, the efficiencies that are out there
3: well i think it's early on i think it's early on so there certainly are a few examples where they've looked at information coming from this um but i think it's been used primarily for like you know day to day so for example for us um, we have a uh, uh, ambulatory center which is uh, uses patient self-rooming. So patients are uh, they check in at the registration desk and then they have to they navigate themselves up to their room. So there's a you know fair amount of time and distance between in this you know 90,000 square foot facility between registration and getting to their room. So we kind of need to know where they are, um, and and once they've hit the room, we need to be able to have a cue that says we need to go in. And you know, engage with them, you know, uh, register them, get their uh, exam uh, started. Mm-hmm. So um, we uh, we use it all the time on a daily basis. Uh, and as some of the analytics go, you know, that's been a little bit slower uh, as far as, uh, you know, the analysis and really using it for uh, workflow and process improvement. It's been sort of this, it's sort of a part of our infrastructure now where it's just like, if it isn't there it's a problem kind of thing so it's really become a part of our you know process there you know I have some stuff which uh, you know I've done some some work some analysis looking at um, you know comparing a standard uh, type clinic where a patients in a waiting room how long they wait uh, versus patient self firming what their exam times are that kind of thing so I think we're still early on um, but I think there's, as we get the, like the technological tools to really, you know, learn from this data, uh, it'll be valuable. Um, it's going to be very valuable. And, you know, one one place that we we visited uh, that was doing something pretty innovative um, with uh, using this RTLS was called, was Dana-Farber, which is a cancer center up in Boston. And they were using this information to determine how many rooms a physician should should have at a given time and so for example if one physician is very busy you can have three rooms whereas if things are going more slowly for another physician they may have just one room and so you can actually in real time based on how many patients are waiting you can have more exam rooms not because you're a better doctor but because you have more demand right now and so you can kind of so there's there's a lot of uh, powerful stuff that's out there Um, and I think again with the Sort of uh, data mining tools that are that are coming online, it can really be integrated into real time processes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that was the next question I had for you: if the data is helping inform how you actually design the practice, uh, if if it allows you to do that, or at least in what you're saying, you're already seeing some people, um, you know, kind of rearrange space and and doctors and patients into areas where they're needed. So are, is it also helping with the design or are you to that point yet? Um, you know,
3: for us, it it is it is not yet sort of reached that state, but we have been able to sort of, you know, justify what we've done, <laughs> which right. is kind of fun. So, you know, for example, that model, um, you know, it's like I told you I'm a, I'm a radiologist. So one of my big pushes is you know, how do we integrate the, you know, the delivery of, you know, radiology care uh, in a way that's sort of integrated and streamlined with the other care. So, you know, at our center, we, um, we integrated the radiology into the patient care area, into the clinic. We also integrated the radiologist, myself, into the clinic. Um, but we just compared, you know, what is the flow like um, for patients who are getting their care uh, when the 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 X ray is right there, versus if it's they have to walk down the hall, mm-hmm. um, and also scheduling. If you schedule them together, can you influence how much time a patient spends? And we've seen pretty sizable a uh, 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 positive impacts on uh, um, integrating that you know radiology piece into the clinical visit, whether it's scheduling the patient's X ray before they come or. Um, having the x-ray very close, we've seen really dramatic differences uh, in overall time spent uh, for patients. So it's been a useful tool to kind of justify what we're doing and to uh, have it done at other places while while we're growing, like Mm -hmm. our institution, BC Health, is is really growing. So using this information to justify uh, planning decisions.
0: Mm -hmm. What does it take to implement uh, one of these products into the system? Is it, I mean, how elaborate is this? What, what does it take? Sure, sure,
3: and, and I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of different products out there, and I think they, they really vary on uh, what their demands are, Those sort of infrastructure demands are. But one of the things that we did before we implemented um, our uh, system is, uh, we did a pilot at one of our uh, ambulatory uh, sites, Where basically, you know, it's kind of, there was a a plug and play model where you could basically, you know, plug in these devices, which allow us to, you know, uh, uh, basically sensors for to sense where uh, patients are. You know, if you got a power source, you could plug it in and it could become a, a sensor. Um versus what we did at our other site where we hardwired this. So every, you know, room was hardwired with sensors, a whole all the hallways. So then we had a very specific map where every room had a specific sensor number, hallway had specific sensors numbers, sensors, etc. Um much more entailed, but much more granular. So we can get very granular, we can actually sort of, like I said, dial up or dial down exactly how uh, uh, granular we want to be on, on the information we're getting. And so that, you know, obviously you would imagine that that second scenario is going to be a fair bit more expensive. And I think that's going to be, that's one of the impediments to integrating this kind of technology is just cost. So there's the cost of the hardware. There's the cost of the mapping it, the process of mapping all these things. the the process of integrating the information we get from the sensors with other information, such as a patient registration information, patient medical information, for example, integration with the electronic medical record. So that that piece, that backbone piece can also be upfront, some expense upfront. But I think probably the area that warrants the, you know, the, the, Going to really need a, a push is going to be that analytics piece, integrated that data analytics piece. That's going to be really important. And there may be some incumbent costs with that, but the value in the information we get, I think, could really outweigh.
0: All right. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This was fascinating hearing you talk about this new technology and how it can change healthcare, really, when you think about it. So thanks so much.
3: My pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having me.
0: As Kevin mentioned, there is sort of a big brother factor here as technology has the capability of encroaching on patients' lives. For medical practices and health systems, it's important to understand compliance and regulatory issues related to technology. For example, in most of the country, facial recognition could be used to check patients in, but in San Francisco, Oakland, and Somerville, Massachusetts, that would be potentially illegal. Joette Derricks is a healthcare consultant and a compliance and regulatory expert. I asked her to give us some insight on some of the compliance issues that practices face when using new technology.
4: Um, It's very tough. A lot of people getting into telehealth, there's some vendors out there, um, and uh, when you're and there's large practices and institutions now where healthcare is becoming more nas- national, and but yet you have to deal with state rules in every state that is different. Um, so that's the problem if your service line or your demographics you cross state lines, and then again the different payers. Um, you know uh, some of the commercial payers pay for online visits, a different kind of virtual visit that you have to use their doctors, not your own, you know, private uh, or personal physician that you've been going to see. So you, you have to figure out what is working for each different uh, payer group. Um, so in my view, that's one of the biggest, uh, biggest problems with, uh is sorting out the different uh, regulations across payers in that and then it's just getting the workflow now down to again making sure you're dotting those i's and crossing the t
0: mm-hmm. what advice do you give then to a medical practice or a health system to help them get up to speed to overcome these barriers or obstacles what can they do
4: well again you know you you got to do the pre-work um You just can't jump in two feet and run with it and um, say, okay, we're gonna, you know, have this many people involved and uh, do this. And uh, you really need, in some cases, you're gonna have to consult with your attorney on things. If you're working with a billing company or some kind of revenue management company, there is an interface there that you need to take care of. A lot of times, um, they say, oh yeah, yeah, we know the regulations, but do they really? <laughs> do they know what, uh, what the billing codes are and what needs to go on the claim for? And too often practices in particular, when they hire outside consultants or have a billing company or a vendor involved, uh, we see this uh, you know, a lot in, with uh, different equipment or even a lot of the EMR issues they trust the vendor knows what they're doing um and then things are set up wrong that you're going to have a problem downstream so it's ceo uh do the due diligence trust but verify um make sure you're setting everything up correctly um make sure you interface with your different payers on what you're doing and that you understand their guidelines and you know and their rules So, you need to, um, you, you just need to set it up right from the, you know, from the get go.
0: Technology can help us in many ways. It can streamline patient care, provide better patient engagement, lower cost, and give us far better insight into what patients need in real time. However, as our experts have explained, there are challenges including regulatory hurdles, issues related to patient privacy. In medical practice adoption. We really are at a crossroads at healthcare technology, and the choices we make now can have a huge impact on the future of healthcare. Personally, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, that concludes our episode on healthcare technology and the future. Thanks to our guests, Anthony Brooke, Andrew Yonke, Kevin Hoover, and Joette Derricks. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. Email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions visit mgma.com/analytics and see how ai can revolutionize your finances and operations again visit mgma.com/analytics today